The Tough Love and Second Chances podcast is written and produced by Tony Bennett on behalf of Edgar and reveals remarkable stories of those who refuse to be defined by their disability. The power of the human spirit shines through with examples of how hope, courage, and the opportunity to express oneself through the game of golf makes for a combination that can improve and even save lives. In May 2019, I met a woman who calls herself the luckiest unlucky person that she knows. Deborah Smith has an extraordinary story which I was privileged enough to hear directly from her. It is a story which I've tried to do justice to. Deborah has ridden the roller coaster of life in the front seat and every twist, turn, ascent and descent has brought a rich meaning to the words that she uses. Surviving a fatal motorbike accident, several bouts of cancer, an amputation, depression, an abusive marriage and survivor's guilt is evidence that Deborah is made of strong stuff. Deborah is, however, thoughtful and grateful as she realises that life is unpredictable and she feels that there is a greater reason that she has been able to overcome so much sorrow and suffering. Fasten your seatbelt as my conversation with Deborah Smith is a hell of a ride. Okay, welcome, Deborah. And uh, where where are you today? Where did I find you? Well, you found me in Chicago at my home uh, last week. I was at an orthotic and prosthetic conference on the west coast of the United States in California. Um, so glad to be back and have a lot of work to catch up on now. <laughs> right. Well, we've got actually got interesting uh, connection there with Chicago. We have a couple of things that go on there. We we started to talk a little bit to the Shirley Ryan Lab, which is based oh. in Chicago, and well, which you probably are aware of. I am. I'm actually a peer mentor for Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, okay. and it's quite a privilege. I was asked to um, join join their peer mentor program. They have quite a impressive. Um, education process for us and it's always really wonderful wonderful to meet other patients who have experienced limb loss how does that work with the the peer mentor uh, program so from a practical perspective what happens then oh that's a great question tony Um, what happens is if a patient is in shirley ryan and they want to speak to someone else who has a similar impairment, Shirley Ryan has a peer mentor program, so they will reach out to someone. So in the case of limb limb loss, it would be someone like myself who's experienced that. But they also have mentors for other um, disabilities. And as I said, I've been very impressed with their um, continuing education for us so that we're aware of issues um, you know, within the disabled community. Well, they certainly seem to be one of the world leaders in disability, and, and we have a connection with them just now. Yes. So tell me a little bit about how you first got involved in... By the way, first, were you originally from Chicago, or did, did you move there? No, I, I moved here quite a while back. Um, I grew up in northern Illinois. So not too far, but I've also lived in Iowa and North Carolina and the United States. And then you moved away and and, and when did you come back? 
Um, boy, 28 years ago, I moved back to Chicago shortly okay. after my oldest was born, my only daughter. Had it changed much? Uh, oh, yes. There's been a lot of growth even in the time that I've been here. I can imagine. It's a big city, isn't it? Yes, it is. So when you were growing up, did you play lots of sports and was that part of your life? Um, actually, I, I started dance lessons when I was four and I progressed and auditioned in high school for the local dance company. So I danced with them, took a lot of lessons. Um, I ran and my parents introduced me to golf. They signed me up for golf lessons when I was 10 uh, through our Rockford Park District. That's the city I grew up in, in Illinois. Um, so that's where I started. My family then joined a, a golf club. And when I think that was in a, when I was in high school and I was able to play there, I took lessons. And I remember my birthdays in May. I asked my parents for my birthday to get me a summer pass for unlimited range balls on the golf, you know, on the golfing range. So I would, I would drive, I would ride my bike there every day, almost every day. And I would hit a just huge, huge bucket of balls. (laughs) And I took lessons. Um, I was on my high school golf team and I was captain of the golf team when we actually participated, competed in the state tournament. Right. So, and, and your parents were, were big into golf, or were they yes, just kind they were, of they enjoyed? No, they, the were, they were they were big they were big golfers also. So their enthusiasm certainly infected me. Um, and as I took lessons, and what I found was diligence, perseverance, and practice is was really the key to you know playing and having a consistent game at that time were you kind of alone there as a junior or was there lots of other juniors in a kind of a program well there were not many girls playing golf um and certainly not as many as on the boys team and i think in that time because that was in the late late 1970s um looking back the high school I was at, we were probably fortunate to have a girls' golf team. Right. And and from those from those early days, you you obviously had your passion for golf uh, ignited, and you, did that carry you all the way through high school and and, and on to whatever came next? Ah, uh, yes, it certainly did. It certainly did. Playing on the golf team was great to have the camaraderie and all of us pulling for each other to play our best. And do we had a, in contact. Do you keep in contact with any of those girls still? No, that's been, I mean, very, that's been a long time. So <laughs> great question. <laughs> I hope they're still playing. Now, what about the golf professionals there? Did they help you a lot? Yes. I was able to take lessons um, from a golf pro at the golf club that we were members of. And I remember he would take me, you know, not only on the range to focus on, you know, driving and uh, my irons, but he also took me into the sand trap and got me comfortable hitting out of sand. Um, So I've actually gotten to where 
it's rather fun, (laughs) depending on the lie that I find myself in. (laughs) So, so you're the captain of the girls team, more or less what age would you be at that stage? I was uh, 17, 18 years old. Okay. And if you were to, if you were to, to look back to when you were 17, 18 years of age, what was kind of in your mind? What was, you know, what was the next five to 10 years going to look like at that stage? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, at that time, the next five to 10 years to me were focused on going to college and getting my degree and um, continuing to golf. Um, I considered dance also, um, but that was the focus. And then, you know, starting a career after I graduated from college. What kind of career would you be looking at, do you think? Boy, looking back, um, I've always been interested in uh, small business and psychology. Uh, my degree is in psychology, and then I went on. I've always also had a strong interest in art. So after my bachelor's in psychology, I went on and started a master's in metalworking and sculpture. Right. Now that's a that's an interesting move. Yes, yes. Uh, both my parents, as well as being golfers, they also owned small businesses and were entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurship was also, you know, something I thought about as having my own business one day, which maybe I do I'm, now. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but you mentioned that there was very few girls in your golf team in the late 70s. I can only imagine there was very few girls doing metalwork at the same <laughs> sort of time. Yeah. Well, th- that's a very good point. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think, you know, come to think of it, I've always been in some very um, strongly male-dominated areas, and I enjoy it. I have three younger sisters, so it, it, you know, it it gave me a different perspective. Got it. So, and you say you have three younger sisters? Three younger sisters, yes. Any, Any brothers? No, no brothers. Okay. So your dad was uh, a very <laughs> nervous father, I'm sure, for many years. Lots of lots of dance recitals <laughs> and, golf, and golf and golf tournaments. Okay, so that, that's kind of where you were going to go. That's the kind of direction you were going to go. So tell me, you know, how did that pan out? Well, it certainly didn't turn out as um, I had thought it would. I. I completed my freshman year in college at the University of Iowa, and I went back home to Rockford for the summer and got a job. And um, late June, um, I survived a tragic accident. I um, got on a motorcycle for the very first time with my boyfriend. We were broadsided and thrown 50 feet into a ditch. And um, he unfortunately was killed instantly. And I sustained injuries from head to toe. The most significant was that my lower leg, the main bone in my leg, my femur was broken, but also my lower leg was essentially severed. Um, So they reattached it because that was in 1981 
I was 19, and in the early 80s, prosthetics were not what they are today. So they attempted to salvage it. In the following five years, I had a couple of dozen surgeries and used crutches um, or a wheelchair. Um, I took a year off of school for treatments and surgeries. And then I returned to school as a sophomore um, using crutches the remainder of the time that I was at the University of Iowa. Um, but I did, I was able to graduate um, with the help of a very good program they had to help students with disabilities. And um, fast forward, I 20 years, I um, got married, had four children, and then did okay. I could walk, I couldn't run, do a lot of the activities that I wanted to and had been doing, but I managed. And then 10 years ago, my ankle and my legs started to deteriorate rapidly. And I had another dozen limb salvage surgeries. Um, ultimately, as we are talking today, I wouldn't be here probably, but um, five year, what, four, a little over four years ago, I decided to have an amputation. My, my leg was an obstacle and a prosthetic was an opportunity for me to perhaps live a better life. Well, you, you've raised a whole bunch of questions there. Um, and <laughs> I really don't know where to start with that one. I mean, I, I mean, I guess I think I have to go to, to start with the accident. So you, you get on the motorbike, it's the first time on the motorbike and yes. you have the accident. And, I mean, I, I guess at some point you, you wake up and you find that your boyfriend is killed. Um, you find that you've, you, you, you've been critically injured um, and, or severely injured, I should say. And I mean, what was going through your mind then? Oh, definitely shock um, for quite a while. And those, um, those years I struggled with uh, survivor's guilt since someone I was with had been killed that I cared about. Um, also with depression over the incredible change that my life had taken um, with my physical abilities. They, I was told that I may not walk again um, or if I was able to, you know, may be using some assistive device. Um, then I continued to have surgeries and problems. Um, a couple of years after the accident, my leg looked like it had healed, but due to a bone infection um, coming back, it broke again. So I had to start from ground zero, which was very disheartening. You'd mentioned that you'd started with your psychology course. Um, yeah. And you were a freshman at the time. Uh, was that any help whatsoever? Oh, definitely, definitely. It helped me with uh, self-reflection, um, most certainly. And, and I thought I might end up in that field. Um, and I certainly gained a different perspective on life from having been through difficulties. And so you then talked to me about, or you mentioned to me about the rehabilitation process for that first year. You took a year off, you mentioned. And so what did that look like? 
Uh, well, initially I was in the hospital in traction for four months, um, you know, with, to stabilize my upper, my femur and have that heal. And then gradually, since I had been in bed for so long, I had to do physical therapy in the hospital just to get to the point where I could use uh, crutches in a wheelchair. Yep. Um, I returned home and then I was in and out of the hospital for surgeries okay. that, that first year and, and the following years. And at that stage, I guess your parents were almost in as much shock as, as you were. Oh, certainly. I, 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 um, what my family and friends went through, I, I, I can't imagine. I, I've always thought it's more difficult to watch someone you care about suffer than to actually suffer yourself. And, and have you spoken to your parents about that that time? Oh, we, we've, we've spoken about it quite a bit, yes. So you then go back to college. You mentioned you do sophomore, sophomore year. You eventually you graduate. And so then you said there was a period of time. Were you still playing golf at that stage or not? Or did that all finish? Well, my physical life after the accident, um, I was just focused on healing and, and walking again. Um, so th I didn't even think about golf or other activities for probably half a dozen years. Um, but after that, I did, I did play occasionally. And, and then, how was that? Was that, um, did you have to adapt or did you feel like you were just part of the golf club as normal? Or did you know anything about I think they call it adaptive golf in, in the U.S. or disabled golf, perhaps, as they call it over in, in Europe. No, I had no idea there was such a thing. And my, my leg was so compromised that I couldn't really rely on it. So I think I essentially was golfing one-legged, if you will. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I was not aware of adaptive golf until just a few years ago after my amputation. Um, and the interesting thing was relearning my swing because I realized that using a prosthesis, I could, I could rely on that leg again. I was playing with legs. It was a real light bulb moment when I, when I ha had that realization. So how did you find out about? Well, I became very involved in the, um, disability, you know, and limb difference, different limb difference groups. So I think somewhere along the line, I met others who were playing and they introduced me to adaptive golf. And I'm actually now I trained about a year ago. I'm an adaptive golf coach here in the okay. Chicago area. Yeah. I'll talk to you about that as well. That's because uh, I mean we're beginning to see more and more players that are now taking a very important role in coaching, or even if they're not involved in coaching, they're involved in introducing the game uh, to other people with disabilities. Yes. And I think that's that. That for me makes absolute sense and is completely in the way that that I would see that the game can really exponentially grow for players with disability because there's nothing like having somebody who's similar to yourself to similar experience and live that similar experience to yourself to be able to introduce you to the sport 
So tell me a little bit about the, the elective surgery. So you've had, you did mention the number of hours of surgery or the number of surgeries that you'd had. But at some point, you mentioned, I think you said four years ago, there thereabouts, you had the elective surgery for an amputation. Um, so what led you to that point? You, you mentioned that you had, you had pain, constant pain. So what, what else led you to that, that um, decision? Um, well, I'd had another round of limb salvage surgeries, and um, a doctor had actually gone in and broken my two the, the two bones in my lower leg to try to better align them and uh, put a spatial frame or an external fixator on my leg, which was the third I'd had in my lifetime. Um, it was not a successful procedure, and I was using a walker or crutches. Uh, five years ago and I just realized that I was not getting any younger this was not going to improve without some type of surgery and I was I was in pain um, I had also um, in, in 2012 my, my amputation was 2015 but in 2012 I left an abusive marriage and was still in the process of divorce um, and I have to say looking back I somehow summoned the courage to leave that situation. And I think it helped me to find the courage I would need to have an amputation. Um, because the idea of taking off a part of your body is certainly intimidating and there's no going back. So I looked at it, I think, as I mentioned early, earlier, my leg was an obstacle and a prosthesis was an opportunity. Yeah. You've had some other health issues. I'm going to continue down the road of the, the, the surgery and your amputation a little bit later, but you've also had some other health challenges. Yes. Was that before the surgery or after the surgery? Um, well, one of the first that I had, um, I had... Like I, like I mentioned, a couple dozen surgeries back in the early 80s, and I received blood transfusions. And um, in the late 1990s, I was incredibly exhausted, and I ended up talking with a doctor, and they tested me, and we realized that I had, had acquired hepatitis C from blood transfusions. So I went on a year of daily chemotherapy, and I was incredibly fortunate as I responded to the treatment. So I am clear of that now. Um, about 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with head and neck cancer. Um, I had a sore on my tongue that wasn't healing. And I pursued with my dentist and asked for a biopsy. I had never smoked. I had no risk factors for that particular cancer. Um, and I was very fortunate to be diagnosed early. Um, the five-year survival rate for oral cancer is 50%. So certainly 10 years later, I'm incredibly grateful to be here. And it goes back to your, goes back to your comment, the luckiest, unluckiest person. Yes, I am the luckiest, unlucky person I know. <laughs> and the order of those words are very important. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. So, 
you, you've gone through all of that. You've gone through leaving the marriage. You've gone through the um, elective amputation. So what did the next six months or so look like? Um, a focus on rehabilitation. And I had had physical therapy after my limb salvage surgeries, but I had exhausted the benefits with my insurance company. So I decided to, I needed to, I needed to keep moving. And I knew that every day that I was down was just going to add to the length of time it would take to recover. So I did my own exercises at home and I was fortunate to have family and friends who supported me during that time. And um, literally I would have friends come over and we would take a walk together. I was using my crutches and it was both camaraderie and a safety safety aspect of, you know, starting to walk again. Um, and, but it certainly encouraged me. And um, the other thing that kept me going, I have four children and now four grandchildren. And right. prior, yes, yes, they are joy in my life. And prior to my amputation, um, when I was sharing with people that I was making this decision, um, I was not sure how people would take it. Uh, one surgeon flat out told me he thought I was crazy. And yeah. that, that prepared me for the reaction others might have. Um, when I told my daughter that I thought I was going to have an amputation, she said, Mom, I think you'll be able to do so much more with your grandchildren than you can now. Okay. And that, <clears throat> that was a real inspiration to me to think, to think about that. And it has proven to be true. So then when did life start getting back to some kind of normality? That, that's a great question. Um, probably about six months after that, because by that time um, I had been fit with a prosthesis. I, um, I unfortunately, after my initial amputation in 2015, I required a revision surgery because of some problems I had with my limb. Um, so that delayed my by getting into the prosthesis and walking. Um, but it was a consistent, consistent daily effort. And, you know, waking up on days that I really didn't want to get out of bed, but I made myself get out there and do exercises and walk. Because um, I knew I wouldn't improve if I didn't keep up the effort. Similar to golf. You have to practice, practice, practice. <laughs> Just before, before I move on, because I want to talk about golf next, but is there anything you'd want to say to those people that were, were helping you at the time? Because you said you had the friends coming around and they were walking with you and helping you with your exercises. Is there anything that you'd want to say to those people that perhaps at the time, I mean, maybe you didn't say? Oh, I am so thankful. Um, and I certainly hope I, I expressed that a believe I thanked them every time they were over because I could not have gotten through without them. They buoyed me up. Um, and I have a friend who I saw about a year ago and she said, Deborah, you, you do, you owe it to everyone who helped you to live your best life yeah. and do your best with every day. And I, that's what I aspire to do. Well, you certainly do, and you certainly make a big difference in a lot of people's lives that you touch, because I've, I've been uh, watching some of the work that you do, and 
Some of that is around golf. Obviously, some of it is not, and we'll come to that in a minute. But if we talk about your golf, so when did golf start to come back into your life? Oh, really? In the past few years, since the becoming aware of adaptive golf opportunities, it has really empowered me as far as my golfing goes. And the tournament that we met at in Richmond, the um, with the U.S. Disabled Golf Association yep. had put on. Uh, that was just incredible to be there with so many people from around the world and then playing with other women, um, the camaraderie and uh, all of us cheering each other on was tremendous. We don't have enough women with disability playing. Why do you think that might be? Um, it, I, I'd say a couple of things, lack of awareness and also intimidation. Um, and what I mean by, by it's intimidating, um, I think back, I was, I was at an amputee coalition conference um, here a couple of summers ago in, in Arizona, and they did an adaptive golf clinic, which was really wonderful. Um, some women were there, and one of them had never held a golf club before. And I remember encouraging her and she stepped to the, she stepped to the range and you could just see the trepidation. Um, it was so nervous about swinging a club and, you know, what if I miss or whatnot? And we just encouraged her and to see the difference between when she picked up the club to the end of that session and how it enlivened her and gave her confidence. Yeah. Um, I would love to share that with, with others. Well, you do now as well, because as you mentioned, you're an, an adaptive golf coach for the Chicago area. Um, yes. How did that happen? How did you get involved in that? And what did you need to do to become uh, an adaptive coach? Oh, great question. I became involved um, through Freedom Golf Association, which is based in Chicago. Yep. They have a program to train coaches. So I went through the training, which was two days. Um, uh, you know, it was instruction that we listened to and watched to and then put into practice the second day. Um, and it's been so fun to go into schools. That's basically what we do in the Chicago area. Yep. And we work with the special needs groups. Is that open to everybody to become an adaptive coach or is there some kind of limitations to how do you get in or how does that work? I, I think it is open, um, but I, 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 I'm not entirely sure. I know they have a training, I think, coming up here in the next month. What is it about golf that makes it so attractive for you? Well, golf is, I think I'm an example of this, something that you can play when you're young and something you can play throughout your following years. Even when you get older, even when you might develop a disability, it's still available to you. And adaptive golf groups are making that possible and helping people see that. You can play even using a wheelchair. Um, you can play if you have a vision impairment. Or at, like myself, if you use a prosthesis. Um, it's, I think it's one of the few sports that you really can play for a lifetime. And would you say that you play more of your golf with, I'm going to put inverted commas around this word, regular golfers, or 
with disabled golfers? Oh, I play with both. And and do you notice a difference with the, the, the groups or is it something that's kind of more or less the same? I'd say it seems like it's this, about the same um, because the friends I play with, they, they just know me as me. <laughs> yeah. My leg is just part of who I am now. So. Yeah. You, you're quite um, an advocate for people with disability getting on and living their life. And you use lots of different formats to do that. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, certainly. Um, As we talked about earlier, I'm a peer mentor with the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab here in Chicago. I'm also a peer mentor with the Amputee Coalition, which is the largest nonprofit that serves the limb difference community in the United States and and beyond. Um, And I also become a lead advocate with the Amputee Coalition which means that we help bring awareness to some of the challenges within insurance and whatnot um, in the United States. Um, And I've also worked with a prosthetic innovator the last several years. I recently went off on my own and started my own business in the orthotic and prosthetic industry. So I'm very much involved um, in that realm. Can you tell me a little bit about your business? Yes, um, I am an independent rep, and the focus is to help small companies that are developing innovative prosthetic and orthotic solutions to gain awareness of, of what they do and what their solutions are you know, amongst the space. So far, so good? Yes, yes. I enjoy it immensely. I, I, I think I, I, I've, always, I've always loved innovation. Um, so it just was a natural fit for me. Of all the things that you've learned from playing golf, is there one or two or two or three takeaways that you think might be useful for other people to learn from? Um, well, there are quite a few. <laughs> um, We've got time. <laughs> okay. Well, persistence certainly. And, you know, life sometimes may leave us with a bad, bad lie, uh, for sake of a golf reference or a bad shot that we may have made or a mistake. And we have to move forward and use that as a learning situation and not become entrenched and engulfed in, in that mistake. Um, uh, You know, perseverance, certainly. Um, My mom, my mom advised me to drive for show putt for dough um, I think, which, you know, means that, you know, every step we take is an important one yeah. as we move forward. And um, I actually play with her old, old, old club sometimes, which I had regripped. And sometimes at these uh, tournaments and whatnot, uh, people will make fun of my clubs. And I just say, it's the Indian, not the arrow. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's what my mom told me. Um, But, you know, practice is certainly important. And just uh, the camaraderie of of golf, just like life, we, we, it's necessary to reach out to others and uh, ask for help when we need it. That was a very difficult lesson for me to learn. But I like to help others. And I realize that it's rewarding for others to help too. Absolutely. And if, 
if you could take yourself now and you could be in a position where they're in a, in a position like you were when you were 19 years of age, you've woken up, um, you're a survivor in an accident where somebody else died. You've had these devastating injuries. Um, and you were to advise that person. You were the first person that they saw when they woke up and you could spend a little bit of time with them. What would you want to say to that person? Oh, wow. Um, just stay in your present moment. Think about where you might want to be in five years and, and think about that future self. Um, but focus on where you are and make the best of each moment you have. Put your, put your best foot forward and keep trying. Don't give up. And then try to create a reason for what has happened in your life. I, I guess maybe the best, I, I, I wear a necklace every day that says uh, Salvatore Ambulando. And I apologize, my Latin is not so good, but roughly it translates to, it is solved by walking the path. That's beautiful. I, I especially like it because the flip side of the, the um, lettering is a labyrinth. Okay. And certainly it feels like the labyrinth some, sometimes for us um, with the twists and turns that our lives take. Well, they certainly do take uh, twists and turns and sometimes we meet people that uh, make a big difference in our lives and it's been a real pleasure chatting to you. Um, and Deborah, I've only got admiration for what you have done with your life and how you're moving forward and helping other people. I've got one uh, final question for you, which is... Likewise, Tony. Is there a, is there a question that I haven't already asked that you were hoping that I wouldn't ask today? Oh, <laughs> oh, that's a great, that's a great question. I can't think of any questions that I wouldn't be welcome for you asking. Is there a question that you re re were reluctant to ask? That no, 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 no. I, I, I asked what I, I asked what I, uh, I like to ask. I, I try and find out, uh, as much as we can do about our, uh, about, about our players. So now, thank you very much for your time, Deborah. I really appreciate it. Um, I wish you all the very best. And hopefully we'll see you again, maybe sometime next year, maybe back over in the States at some, some point. Maybe you'll make a visit over to Europe and to one of the tournaments over here, which would be great to see you here and, and boost the women golfers over here. We, we had the, the pleasure of welcoming uh, Grace Ann Braxton over to play yes. in a, a demonstration which we did at the Solheim Cup, which was nice. Uh, so that was... Oh, she's, she's delightful. I met her. I played with her at the uh, tournament in Virginia. Okay, right. Okay. She is a so, bright light. So we, uh, we had the pleasure of having her over and, and her father, Harrison. And um, so hopefully we might be, might be able to, to get you over here at some point and, and see you and you can encourage some of the, the ladies over here as well. That would be great. Oh, I, you know what? I can think of one thing I just wanted to share with you. Um, I've mentioned that my prosthetic has really empowered my life. And it's also introduced me to 
things that I never would have imagined doing. Uh, one of which was sailing. All right. I sailed until after uh, having an amputation, and now I've competed in some um, regattas with actually been able to crew with some Paralympic sailors, which has been a thrill. I guess the world is, you just never know. <laughs> I think within, within, within every challenge is an opportunity. That's for sure. What, what, what did you enjoy about sailing? The, I, you know, I think in a nutshell, it's that it forces you to live in the present moment. It's been a thrill. I, I sailed with uh, Rick Dorr, who won the silver in the last Paralympics, and um, John Toomey, who lives in Ireland, who won several golds in past Paralympics. And they're just exceptional sailors and the opportunity to learn from people who are in, at such a higher caliber, <laughs> um, obviously, is just is incredible. It's incredible the opportunities there are within adaptive sports. Well, that's for sure. And I think those, those, um, those opportunities are getting bigger and bigger because I think now there's a much greater transfer of players from one sport to another sport. I think one of the difficulties for uh, people with disability has been that the menu of sporting options has been relatively small. And I think now it's becoming much wider because more and more sports are now embracing people with disability, um, which is long overdue. But nevertheless, it's happening now. And so the menu of sporting option is getting bigger. And it means that somebody who perhaps previously only, for argument's sake, was, um, was sailing or perhaps was only playing golf, now they have an opportunity to do both. And yes. you know, I've spoken to a couple of the guys recently, one that does alpine skiing during the, the winter and plays golf in the summer. Fantastic. And uh, th there's more and more of that that's happening now. Which is good. Oh, definitely. I'm, 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 I always try to encourage my fellow sailors to try golf. Yeah. And I, I think this adapt, adaptive golf is going to just expand exponentially in the coming years. I'm sure it is. And again, as, as in, shall we say, the regular sports, the mainstream sports, you, know, you can only be a gymnast for so many years. You can only be a high competition swimmer for so many years. Um, you're only going to throw yourself over a, a high jump bar for so many years. And at some point, you go, not anymore. Uh, it, you know, physically, it becomes really difficult to do. And so therefore, clearly, it's, very, it's a very good opportunity for people that still have that competitive urge, that competitive desire to still be competitive in a sport, but a sport that their body can accept. And their body can do and clearly golf is that is that sport and so as i say in the mainstream sports there's a relatively um well-known term which golf is the world's biggest second sport so that's not the second biggest sport in the world it's just the biggest sport that people have as their second sport so after football they play golf after cricket they play golf after athletics they play golf and it's very, very typical. And I think that will happen again now for some maybe of the para-athletes para that previously have been swimming or have been uh, doing gymnastics or you know, wheelchair rugby or whatever it is that they play. They, they might look for another sport. 
And of course, golf is that option. Oh, I agree. And, and, and I, th- I think it, may, it might be even uh, less intimidating than some of the other adaptive sports for people who have never played before um, to, to, tr- to start playing. Um, it, it certainly, I could see I, the woman I mentioned earlier, I could see the confidence level. Her confidence just was so boosted by swinging yeah. the club. That's true. And I, I also think the other thing is that golf is pretty unique in that using the handicap system that we have, which is just a fundamental part of the game. Yeah, you know, we've got players that, that are competing together with players from the mainstream sport in a single, you know, in a single game. There's not it's not special rules, it's not uh, some kind of difficult organization to try and make it happen. So, you know, for instance, I give the example of tennis, you know, it's going to be a long time before we put a wheelchair tennis player on the same court as, for argument's sake, Roger Federer or um, Serena Williams, playing the same sport with the same rules. It's, it's pretty difficult to imagine. And it would be pretty difficult to imagine, you know, wheelchair rugby playing against a regular rugby team it's just not going to happen. So in golf, we can do that. And, and in fact, we now have a couple of tournaments on the, the men's European tour and the Australian tour. We have three tournaments this year. I, yeah, more. Actually, four eventually uh, by the end of the year where we've got players that are competing over exactly the same golf course as the world's superstars at the same time, uh, same tees, same golf course, same time. And they're competing in the same conditions. And that can only be a good thing for inclusiveness and to show that, you know, we have a game here that is ideally suited for many different types of disability. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, look, the future is bright, that's for sure. Um, yes. And people like you make it brighter. And as you, as you become a, a more and more of an advocate for, for getting more people playing the game, that's, that's great to hear. But also, as I said, thank you for the work that you do and uh, for, for making sure that people with disability have an opportunity to start to play the game. And uh, congratulations. Oh, thank you. And it's been a pleasure talking with you again, Tony. Please keep me posted on how I can help the adaptive golf Movement, Absolutely, movement. I will do. I, I certainly keep my eye out um, on websites and whatnot, but if there's something that comes to mind, please feel free to reach out. Perfect. That's for sure. I will do that. Oh, I well, and I, I do think sometimes it, everyone has challenges and huge challenges that are not visible to others. And in this odd way, I'm almost, you know, people instantly recognize, oh, Deborah's been through something. Whereas I look at every, everybody I meet and think they've been through something. And I do look at, I've had a lot of sorrow and a lot of suffering in my life. But I also believe that when you have these extreme experiences, it has also expanded my capacity for incredible joy. Right. It's like a spectrum that has been, or a balloon that's been stretched. Um, I'm just, and so I'm, I'm 
grateful for that because I appreciate so much more of the small moments and, and how, uh, and how unpredictable life is because the day that I got on the motorcycle for the first time, you know, first of all, my parents at growing up said never get on a motorcycle. And it was an absolute fluke that, that I was on it because we were going to a picnic with friends and my boyfriend called, you know, on the landline back in the eighties. Yeah, absolutely. Said, yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> he said, Oh, my car won't start. Um, do you mind if I pick you up on my motorcycle? And I'm 19. What? Oh, sure. You know, no helmet. I mean, my head was smashed by the windshield. And like I said, he was killed instantly and we flew 50 feet. I don't know. You know, some angel apparently was there to, you know, I don't know. It's it. it, it and I, I've always that I mentioned the survivor guilt earlier. Um, Ray, my boyfriend, was an only child. And he had been adopted from Sweden. Right. And so, you know, to think that I survived and had three younger sisters and this poor family lost the only child they had. Yeah. It, it was heartbreaking. I mean, it still is to think about. It's just, you know, what, how do I make my life worthy to be here? It, like that, probably that question helps propel me. When, um, you know, things are rough. If that well, makes sense. You're right. And you, you, as I mentioned, the stories that we, we tell, we tell a story. And once we tell the story, we give it to somebody else and they make their own meaning of that story. And they will either resonate with the story. There'll be, you know, for a hundred people that we, we that read your story or a thousand or 10,000 or however many people read your story, there will be a percentage of those people that will resonate with it because they'll resonate to getting on a motorbike for the first time with their boyfriend or they'll resonate with losing a limb or they'll resonate with one of the illnesses that you've mentioned or they'll resonate with the abusive marriage or they'll resonate with the golf, or they'll resonate with something else. And that's fine. And then there'll be other people that won't resonate with any of it. They just won't, sure. It, it, it just won't, it won't touch them. And what's really interesting is then, what does that story do to the people that it resonates with? How are they different because of having read the story? Now, we already know from some experience of this over the last couple of years, that people that have read... For example, I mentioned Mike, but it, it might not be Mike. It might be James or it might be Tinica or it might be, you know, any of the other people that we've, we've, we've interviewed. There's going to be a story there for somebody. It's going to resonate with everybody. And because of reading that story, what did that make them do that night when they went home? Did it make them that little bit more grateful? Did it make them that little bit more... Um, have a bit more acceptance of their situation? Did it make, did it inspire them to say, well, if Deborah can do it, I can do it. What, what, what does it do? And that's the really interesting part. The, the, the effect that it has, it, these, these circles of, of influence that I mentioned right at the beginning, they kind of ripple out and you never really know where they, where they land on shore. 
they will land on shore somewhere. You're not sure quite where they'll land. And that's a great there's point. going to be somebody at some point who picks it. It's, it's rather like the, the message in a bottle. You know, somebody's going to pick that <laughs> message. Somebody's going to pick that message up, and it's going to mean everything to them, and it's going to change them. And we might never hear about that, and that's okay. That's also fine. That doesn't matter. And for every every ten people, or maybe every hundred people that it means something to, we might hear one percent. So we'll hear one person that will get back to us and say, because of the story that I read on Deborah, I now have decided to fill in the blank. And oh, I, that's the power. To help someone feel less alone, even, you know, it's such a lonely, I've been in some lonely places due to circumstances. And I, I, didn't, I, I don't often mention the uh, abusive marriage, but I'm starting to realize, and I think to the community I live in, as I started to just share tidbits, I was so astounded by how many, usually women, would share stories of their lives that they, of a horrible situation they were in. And like I said, it was just such a difficult period of time and difficult to leave that behind. Um, But it's like the leg I left behind, I needed to do it to open my life to new possibility. And like, like you said, I mean, something, uh, it, it, you know, if it, like for Mike, for example, and myself, these type of opportunities to talk to you and others, it helps create meaning for something that we can't really explain. Thanks, Deborah. Thank you. I wish, sorry, I wish I could give you thumbs up too, but I am. <laughs> okay. Well, look, take care. Speak to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Have a good evening. Okay, bye-bye. This was an Edgar Player story, supported by Ping, helping golfers to play their best. For more information about Edgar, please visit edgargolf.com. Stay tuned for the next Tough Love and Second Chances podcast. Ping. Play your best.